0: Welcome to Grain on the Brain, a podcast started by the Prairie Organic Grain Initiative and now hosted by the Manitoba Organic Alliance. We're working to create resiliency and stability in the prairie organic grain sector. Our host is Scott Beaton, who operates a 640 acre organic farm in Manitoba. Tune in as each episode Scott talks to researchers, farmers, and other experts in the organic sector to discuss important issues in organic grain farming. Check out our website at manitoboorganicalliance.com for resources, tools, and the expertise you need to get you growing. You can connect with us on Twitter at Manitoba Organic, or come meet us at one of the events that we host. Today's episode, Scott talks to Ward Middleton, an organic farmer since 1998 in Alberta, who has integrated cattle through winter grazing on his cropland and summer grazing on his perennial pasture land. Here's Scott and Ward.
1: Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm here with Ward Middleton from uh, Sturgeon County, Alberta, uh, just north of Edmonton. He farms up there with his wife, Joanne, and uh, we're happy to have you here today, Ward. Thanks very much. So... We're here to talk about livestock integration. That's uh, the title of our podcast for today. Um, you've got lots of other stuff, lots of interesting stuff going on at home, I know, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll focus on livestock and, and kind of move around on how they fit into your farm. And so I guess to start, if you could just tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and your operation there, we'll get get on the right track.
2: All right. Our farm is uh, about 800 acres, just a touch more. 800 acres in the total enterprise, but the primary farm that we're going to focus on for this discussion is uh, is much like your farm size, Scott. It's a uh, 640 acre one section, a square mile, and uh, you know we've been organic since 1998. Uh, we purchased the family farm in 1994 from uh, my siblings and and it led us down the road as we were exploring you know how could we make a small market farm economically viable as a you know a standalone business enterprise that didn't have to be supplemented from my off-farm job and i i have a background as a tradesman and power engineer and uh and so, uh when we moved home to the to the farm, we embarked on investigating a number of different things uh that I thought would present a higher revenue generation uh, and not necessarily involve livestock ironically. So we you know were used to organic grain or we were used to grain production, but we also looked at herbal and nutraceutical crops and ornamental grains and grasses. And native seeds, uh, native grass seeds, that sort of thing. And we did some trials over the first few years, but it was, it was sort of the herbal and nutraceutical crops that led us to organic. Because some of the customers, when we were growing our first crop of milk thistle seed, were saying, wow, this is great. But if you could make it organic, then we would uh, we'd pay you twice as much. And, uh, uh, of course, I thought, organic, well, how hard could that be? <laughs>
1: I hear you. That's pretty neat. So, yeah, you would say you uh, you were a organic crop producer ever before you thought about livestock, and that's kind of the same as I, I think, too. I, I've used them as a tool in my crop production system, and they seem to be becoming a bigger part of that system lately. Um, what kind of livestock are you using? We're using cattle, and
2: it's uh, it's been a a bit of a a challenge and a bit of a a journey for me to come to terms with the fact that even though I'm, you know, I've been quoted as saying that I hate cows and it's not necessarily true. Uh, Cows cause me stress and I'm, I recognize fully that I'm not blessed with good animal husbandry skills. And so in, in the 20 years that we've been organic farming, it took me to about 15 years into that mark uh, before, before I started to muse over how could I possibly introduce livestock um, to our farm if that's the sort of thing that keeps me awake at night. And so it wound up leading us to developing a relationship with another farmer, another stock person. And we don't own the herd of cattle that are on our farm. Now for the last three full years, uh, they've been on our farm full time. And, uh, and so a lot of people say, well, if you're doing all that work, why don't you just own the cows? And I I do clarify that, you know, we're not doing all the work. It's a, it's a coordinated uh, business relationship. You know, it might be a bit rich to call it a partnership because we're still two separate business entities, but we recognized that there was an opportunity to integrate livestock more than what we started out doing because it was originally just going to be one quarter section of our, of our four quarters that we were farming on the primary farm it was, it was a means to satisfy environmental concerns that we had when we did our environmental farm plan. And, uh, this quarter section was prone to wind erosion. It's lovely topsoil, but it used to be a seasonal lake bed and we're in a fairly flat, uh, plain. I, I always said it was this flat as the flattest place in Canada. And that was before I saw the red river area of Manitoba when I went down there. But, uh, but it's, it's very flat. We have a drainage canal that drains an upstream shallow lake bed that controls flooding there. And when that drainage canal comes through our farm, it only drops a foot every half mile. So it's topography is something that I dream about, you know, other than just pool table flat. But this one quarter section, when we tilled it, we had a wind erosion event in uh, 2001 that uh, – that filled the county ditch with topsoil. And it was heartbreaking. It was just the the culmination of the wrong, maybe not the wrong practices, but the wrong timing uh, for whatever the weather event was. And so when we did our environmental farm plan, the best and simplest solution was to put that quarter section back to permanent cover. And so again, I was confronted with, well, hey, it's great. Now I've got, I have hay, but if I'm going to manage this farm organically and I'm I'm going to just grow hay and ship it off. All I'm doing is exporting that nutrient and it's a lower value commodity. So we thought that if we could come to terms with the fact that we were going to have livestock on the land, well, we don't have to own the herd of cattle. So we started to custom graze and we fenced that quarter section that is bisected corner to corner at a diagonal line with uh, this drainage canal. It was two 80-acre triangles, and we divided it into 20-acre paddocks that we could rotationally graze cattle on, and we put in a a solar watering system that fed a pasture pipeline so that each 20-acre paddock had water infrastructure where the cattle could, could get to a water trough. And it was great. It was like being a grandparent you know looking after the grandkids because you just got to have all the fun with the livestock you know open the gate and see 1200 pound animals dancing and loving every moment of life while they go into the fresh grass and uh but when the real work started in the fall we could send them home just like grandparents do with kids and then it slowly evolved into more than that for winter grazing as well
1: yeah right on so then yeah you're end up Great keeping them on there on that permanent pasture through most of the summer and then in the winter they move out into your uh, crop cropland areas.
2: That's correct. Uh, for for the longest time we just ran that quarter section as a completely separate business unit. And in my mind, it was it was all very simple because I'm just an organic grain farmer and on our four quarters we have you know three quarter sections that are under cultivation and every third year we're doing a green manure plowdown so one of those quarter sections roughly every year was in a green manure crop but you know for the longest time the cattle didn't have any part of that other than justifying that if we would you know target $10,000 worth of grazing revenue for the summer season off of that quarter section that essentially in my mind canceled out the cost of putting in uh, a green manure crop that I was going to plow back into the soil or till back into the soil, not necessarily using a moldboard plow. But, uh, yeah. you know, you had to plant and establish that crop and then work it in. And so I kind of looked at those those two things economically as just one paying for the other. And, uh, and so our little farm was really generating most of its gross revenue or the primary component of the gross revenue was two quarter sections of harvested organic grain every year. And, uh, and I mean, this is where I'm going to get off into the weeds a little bit, you know, through this, through this process, it had been like that for about a decade where we just bring the cattle in and they're, they're doing their own thing. And that was kind of chores through the summer. And we were doing the rest of our grain farming on the surrounding quarters, right adjacent to this custom grazing pasture and uh, it was in uh, on my, my, the t- some time where I spent uh, on the board for Organic Alberta. It was in the development of the Prairie Organic De- uh, Development Fund, which then funded the Prairie Organic Grain Initiative and uh, found myself sitting on some of the advisory committees that were, you know, composed of organic industry people and academics and researchers and other farmers. And it was, uh, you know, I was supposed to be there to be helping, you know, provide opinion on on how how the program was going to be run. But in that time, I, I started to have my own thoughts inoculated by good ideas. And so I, I kind of placed this this whole responsibility of us beginning to even consider winter feeding cattle on our land as a means of nutrient import right at the feet of uh, Dr. Martin Entz, who suggested it in one of these advisory committee sessions. And when he first said it, I'm like, well, yeah, that's just crazy. What am I supposed to go and fence all my land and and buy a herd of cows and bring it in? And that was just, it seemed so far-fetched. But the, the point is, he started me thinking about it. And I and it's like well we already have this one quarter section that's fenced, but that's you know it's that quarter section where that drainage canal goes across that pasture. It when they dragline that canal, they never touch clay. It's twenty five percent organic matter, beautiful lush soil that will grow grass tall enough to hide cows. You know. Uh, and and that's not necessarily where my concern was it was where i was harvesting grain and exporting that nutrient off in the form of tons of yield each each year and so uh and so anyway just as a sidebar when when i'm out and i'm cold and i'm not having a good day winter feeding cows i curse martin ants for that
1: (laughs) there's a saying about uh it's better to have a scapegoat than a solution a lot of the times. So it's nice to have somebody to blame for these things. I do the same. I, I'm not a good cattle producer. I, I hope one day I will be. But, yeah, more often than not, I'm angry at them, I think. So
2: Well, we'll see. And, and I, you know, like the, the big thing for me was to recognize that. And uh, if it was up to my wife, who who does have really good Temperament with all sorts of livestock, you know. And I, I was uh, once quoted at a different conference as saying, I, you know, I, I, I rue the day that my kids were introduced to 4-H because between the pressures of my wife, and the beguiling of the 4-H club, that is the gateway drug to farming with livestock. My kids got involved in livestock, and and so then it was just that extra nudge I needed when. I participated in the um, another one of the Prairie Organic Grain Initiative programs was the Farm Nutrient Program, and they also ran uh, a session on organic agronomist training that I took, and and it put into cold hard numbers what I was exporting in nutrient off of my farm each year in the form of organic grains, oil seeds, legumes. And that was, that was the clincher where I, I thought, you know, it's worth building at least fence on one quarter section adjacent to this um, or at least thinking about it, you know, like because, well, you know, maybe we could graze some cattle. And then that very uh, year that I was just toying with that idea that summer, we kind of had a drought condition and I believe that would have been about 2017 somewhere. And uh, the, the herd of cattle that we had that were custom grazing here, uh, I, I called the owner and I told him, gee, we've already done one full cycle through the eight 20-acre paddocks that we have, and that, that first pasture just hasn't really come back. Like, it's come back some, but we've just had no rain. And he said, if you send them home, I have nothing to feed them, and my hay isn't even producing so we looked right next door at that quarter section that I'd been considering uh, winter feeding on, and I had a multi-species uh, green manure crop that not not nearly as technical as things are now. Uh, it was you know wheat, oats, barley, faba beans, uh, two different varieties of peas, and some buckwheat. Um, and I'm still kind of inclined to not get all that fancy. I just want you know a variety of species in my cover crop mix, but there was, there's never really been any regard to, uh, what each one was specifically doing. I was just looking for, you know, the more, the merrier, each, each plant having a different relationship with different, uh, soil, uh, bacterial microbe populations or fungal populations in the soil. Each one is a little bit different. Each plant augments it slightly different, but it was, opportune to then quickly fence that that piece that piece was actually 120 acres and uh and it was astounding that we got um four weeks of of grazing with uh 90 head of cattle off of off of that and by the by the time you know the rains came and, and our pasture started to rejuvenate again they were nicely just finishing up that green manure crop and and then it started me thinking well how come it's taken me this long to get to this point and think that I should do that because they've really they've saved me at least one tillage pass and in any of the areas where I had thistle patches in the leeward side of the trees where seeds would collect or what have you you know the cattle would kind of leave it but if I went out there with my swather and swath it then the cows would come over and eat it up and so it wound up I got two clippings in that in that time, when we were grazing the cattle in August, and uh, they were timely clippings, and at the end of it, I was, you know, fairly confident that I had got just as good of thistle control as what I would if I'd have just been, you know, going over it with my disc. And so that started us thinking, where, well, hmm, now that we've got this piece fenced, what if we kept the cattle there in winter, winter grazed? and uh, but we didn't do it immediately that year we waited one more year and it was actually a different producer uh stock person that uh that uh, teamed up with us to do that
1: right on yeah i know that makes makes lots of sense i always see those annual cover crops as a good opportunity to rest uh, some pastures when you really don't want those cows on kind of in that early fall critical period and and in a situation like yours where, yeah, you you just weren't getting any regrowth and you need to give it a bit of a break if you expect it to come back at all. So that, uh, that sometimes that opportunity makes you think a little bit differently about things. So if I were to go back, what do you, what is a normal crop rotation look like for you on those uh, three quarters that are, that are around the farm there? I always
2: feel self-conscious whenever I've, you know, been asked to present or or I get asked a question like this, because you ask it with the confidence that I actually have a meticulous plan and and that's that's seldom the case. Um, we you know we, we grow an array of crops that that would in you know in cereals would include hard red spring wheat, barley and oats, and winter cereals like hard red winter wheat and uh, fall rye and legumes that are faba beans or peas and oil seeds that are, you know, golden or brown flax and Polish canola. And uh, we also had uh, sweet clover was kind of always our go-to green manure down if we were going to use a biennial as our choice but you know now that we've now that we've introduced livestock into it year-round and we're going to be feeding cows on our land we've also added alfalfa back into that for the first time in 20 years and so it's nice because that will help us uh, really get a reset on some of the problematic patches of canada thistle that we've had but to say you know what is a crop rotation I always back it out and say, I don't I don't have a firm rotation. I'm always impressed when people say, here's our six-year plan, here's the rotation, but in general sense, we're going to be doing agreement or plowdown once out of every three years. And twice out of every three years, I would like there to be a legume growing on that land, even if it's with another crop. And so we've done a fair amount of intercropping over the years, and it, it, it kind of blurs and mashes together. The overall crop rotation strategy on what would be, you know, clean and concise on a on a spreadsheet, because we'll do, excuse me, we'll do uh, a lot of what I call relay cropping intentionally, and so we'll we'll plant like if it was just if it was just going to be an annual crop, we would do like a peas and canola or a barley and faba beans together, but then. You know, what I plant the next year will kind of depends on what was the combination the year before and where the, are they both annuals or in the second year, are we planting a barley undersown with sweet clover or a wheat under sown with sweet clover? And I, I kind of, you know, look at the all of the different options that are out there and look at a number of the different things where, uh, you know, market is definitely one of them, but it's not the the sole decision if you know if, if flax is paying over 40 bucks a bushel i probably still shouldn't put flax in just because of the price if i've got a piece that's got a lot of weed pressure and i know that uh, because of choices like that in the past i probably have a, a higher weed population in the in the seed bank than uh, than the average farmer and I'm, I'm comfortable with that i just especially uh, and it lends lends more credence now to be comfortable with having that if you if you say you know what worst comes to worst we can graze, graze that off with cattle but uh, when back to your question saying you know what does the crop rotation look like I'll you know we we make uh, really our best our best money I find on hard ride spring wheat and uh, beyond that I I'll do whatever rotation gets me some sort of nitrogen fixation two of the other years. So I, I realize that that sounds like I'm I'm trying to do target practice with a fire hose.
1: No, that's uh, that's fair. That's kind of what I was looking for. Um, I know for me, the having the cows and needing a place for them to to have something to eat every year, I find that it adds this layer of complexity to deciding what you're going to grow. Um, But at the same time, I think they're a good place to give you some flexibility in that rotation where if something's not working out, you go kick the cows out and they can chew it down. Uh, Or you need your, your green manure, something dealt with, or you need a quick clip on that, you can put them out there and yeah, it seems to me they're, they're both a, a source of complexity, but also a, a solution to some of the problems that come up quite often. So um, I know what you're saying. And yeah, I, I used to be a spreadsheet. I still am. It's still in there, but I want to follow this set crop rotation, but I find since the cows are involved, um, you do, you have this kind of guideline in the back of your mind, but you end up going this way or the other way from year to year uh, and kind of watch. I think you, you, I find I'm more observant in terms of, well, what did that last crop look like before you decide what it is that you're going to grow next? And yeah, everything you said kind of makes me think you think the same way.
2: It, it definitely like introducing the livestock has added complexity to that because uh, you know, our, our annual, annual crops that we used to plant for our green manure it was just easy to say well there's those three-quarter sections every third year this is going to be back in a green manure and now uh, you know when we're looking for uh, for a certain cash flow that used to come from two-quarter sections of of organic grain or, or grain production um, now to say hey we should take some of that out and put that into alfalfa, and there, you know, the, there's all of the fantastic agronomic benefits of putting it into alfalfa with that deep-rooted mineral lifting that's going to go on, and uh, outcompeting the the perennial uh, south thistle, Canada thistle problems, and cleaning that up. And we're not exporting that nutrient. Um, it it does. Present a challenge, though, to say, okay, well, let's take eighty or hundred acres out of that, out of that uh, crop production, where we're looking for that cash crop cash flow to come in, and let's establish uh, some some hayland where we're going to basically lift lift that nutrient and fix that nutrient from the atmosphere and move it next door to the field next over, and that's where we're going to winter feed now, um, along with whatever other hay gets imported but it it throws a wrench into what had been a fairly simple even, uh, crop ro- selection for the rotation and and when i say it's simple it was still you know to to my neighbor who once asked me what we were growing on the farm and i and i went through the list of all of the things that we might choose from to grow and how many of those might be intercropping combinations and how many of those intercrops might be an annual with a biennial to relay crop to the next year that we might seed another biennial into so that it would grow again the next year after that. And he, he was flabbergasted because all he would do is wheat and canola on 50% of the land each. And the next year he would switch and he was just boggled by the complexity. Um, and yet it, it wasn't at all complex to me until we introduced cattle and said, okay, well now we're going to, you know, take 20 or 30% of our cash flow out, and don't worry, you'll get it back in grazing and feeding, and I, and I wasn't necessarily, sh- necessarily sure that that would be the case, that I would make as much money, and I, w- I was willing to do it just because it's better for the soil, Like it's and it's a means of importing nutrient. Yes, we're growing some of it here, but uh, the stock person is also bringing other hay in that we're bale grazing and adding and uh and we'd sit at the table with a whiteboard and and my my daughter came up she's in her second year of university and of course home now with the pandemic she came up this spring and we were doing a five-year plan and she goes i didn't think you guys planned crop rotations that far ahead and and we had the whiteboard all uh you know filled up and busy with with columns and and charts and arrows in every direction and we're we're just trying to find what's the most cost-effective way because now we also have to realize there's a lot more fencing that's being involved too, you know. And so once you make that commitment, it, it can be a temporary fence. But if you're going to do the work and you're going to be doing this for a while, uh, the the suddenly the crop rotation plan became more complex.
1: Yeah, that all sounds very very familiar. I I think one other thing to note that you kind of touched on there. Um, I find, and I've, I started the piece for the cows are on right now is, was a 200 acre field five years ago, and then it became cut basically in half. And I've since cut those halves in half again. Um, I find that I'm more able to manage different soil zones differently. Like the cows are at our place, they're bale grazing this winter, They've got about a 10 or 15 acre piece that they're on. And I picked that spot because it's the highest spot that had some kind of wind erosion problems. But yeah, it's like you say, you're, you start to be able to manage these little wee areas that you never would have thought about managing differently when they were just in crop production. And I think that's a great thing for, for soil health on, on your own farm as well as some other bigger issues around water management at a landscape scale and and habitat for for species and things like that so I think that's a it's a pretty neat transition that you kind of go through naturally because you all of a sudden you can manage for that kind of smaller scale that you never used to um, you mentioned fencing so what what kind of fence do you guys? generally like to put up and uh, I guess why do you why do you go the way you do
2: you know on the uh, on the quarter section that is our custom grazing pasture at the start of it we were even uh, intimidated about building fence and so we we hired a contractor to come and, and fence the first 80 acre triangle and and in watching it, you know, because I'd been raised on a mixed farm and that was, you know, part of me being jaded to livestock is having, you know, maybe some, some uh, dilapidated infrastructure and having cows get out and you're chasing cows out in the dark and, and the frustration that came with that. I wanted to have some, some good infrastructure. And so we hired this custom fencer to come in and build and, and, uh, and I, wasn't, I wasn't necessarily as pleased with uh, the fences is is what I was you know they didn't necessarily fully meet my expectations. Although, you know they've been in the ground for 14 years now and they haven't caused me any problems. But I was fussing over the fact that you know some of them weren't straight and 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 so I just thought you know what we'll do the rest of the fencing ourselves and and it was good. It was really just the the push that we needed to to take that and take that on and own it. And and in that we found that every fence that we built became a different experiment of combinations. And we're, so the perimeter of the quarter section is is all uh, four wire barbed wire. Um, although on you know one of the sides we thought, well, let's put a high tensile wire down on the bottom to see, you know, if they're eating underneath that. It, it, we we you know do, do we want them? This is this is us not knowing that the barbs don't really hurt the cattle. It's not really that big a deal, but anyway, we were trying different combinations uh, all the way along, and then we it's like, well, hey, for the drainage canal when it comes through the farm, through that through that quarter section, let's do three wires high tensile, and we'll electrify that because on both sides, because that becomes the conduit. That our fencer is at one edge of the one corner, the top left hand corner of the square that's cut from top left to bottom right, if you can picture that in your mind, by that drainage canal. And there's a fence on both sides. And then with the paddocks, each 20 acre paddocks, all of them were divided north and south, and they were just a single high tensile wire. And some people have looked at that on an overview and said, well, you know, if it's cut corner to corner, how come you didn't do like a wagon wheel pie chart type of thing? Um, and the answer was, well, we had integrated sea buckthorn plantings in a silvopasture concept, where the on the boundaries of each twenty-acre paddock, we planted a double row of sea buckthorn berry trees, and and they we wanted them to be oriented straight north and south in the rows so that the berry production would be equal on both sides as the sun came up in the east and went down in the west whereas if the if they ran at some other angle there'd only be maybe berries on the south side so in any case through that all through you know there's about 7 miles of fence on that quarter section and it was good because we tried a number of different combinations and And, you know, we said, well, this is way faster to build a fence if you're going to use electricity. But if there's ever a problem with that fencer, it was sure nice to have the perimeter fence be a four wire barb that didn't require the power. So that would be about the only thing that I've that I say that I've really found was was solid for us was that our perimeter fence should be able to contain the livestock, even if your power system wasn't functioning that being said we haven't had lots of problems with our with our fencer but it does occur at some point you'll go out there and it's just not working but if you're looking for something that's just quick uh, and like we did this fall we just did step in posts with polywire one wire and it's at the perimeter of the quarter section mark on 100 acres of alfalfa that we didn't get a second cut of hay on uh, we got one massive cut that was a bit delayed and, uh, and I wasn't thinking anything of it because, you know, that's the third year of that alfalfa and it's doing a good job of controlling perennials. And I thought, Hey, I don't mind just leaving that and letting it feed the soil. But the fellow who owned the, the cattle was saying, Oh, wow. Hey, it's, it's costing me a lot more money as soon as we put them onto dry feed with the yardage rate and the feed cost. But if they're, you know, like, and I'm I'm getting off on a tangent i can come back to that afterwards um but he essentially pushed us to say hey how much grazing do you think we'd get off of that alfalfa after freeze up so we went and built uh two sides we had to build fence on two sides of that field and uh it was all just poly wire and step in and we just made sure that that system had its own dedicated fencer and and we you know put it up in a day and had those cattle out there and we only got two weeks of grazing out of it but, but it was, you know, it, it was still uh, an extra he's up to 100 and, we're 165 head of cattle now. He's growing his herd quite a bit over the last few years. And uh, so it still provided us a decent second cut revenue that, off of that piece for the day's labor of going out and building that perimeter fence. plus, you know, we'd also have uh, an hour a day. Moving, moving wire because we moved them almost every day as we were going across there. So, so the original question was, what type of fence do we like? Every type has its pros and cons. And uh, so I would like to say, yeah, the, the perimeter fence should be able to contain them without power. Everything else in between that you're gonna be working with, electricity and you know, one or two wires is the way to go. And then you can put your posts 25 paces apart.
1: Yeah. Well that uh that sounds about good to me from, from the from all the talking I've done about trying to figure out what kind of fence to put on. Um yeah, we ended up ours is all electric, but that outside one is uh yeah, pretty heavy looking electric. So it's a bit of a more than just uh I forget what they call it. There's a physical barrier and a mental barrier, I guess, is the other one. So if it can be a bit of both and, on the outside, I think that's not a bad thing.
2: And as oh, we got more used to the cattle, and since this herd has been here for three years now, uh, consistently, I mean, he's he keeps adding more to it, and there there's new imports. But you know, some of those some of those cows have been here for three full years, going into their fourth year, and they we you know we trust that they respect the fence, they they respect the electricity. And so, I mean, we've gone from a perimeter fence on, you know, 15 foot post spacings to uh, having a perimeter, you know, fence that, that, you know, well, like I said, 15 feet between the wood posts on our, on the perimeter of our custom grazing pasture to now on our cultivated land, we built a perimeter fence on the next adjacent field and along the roadside. It was rebar with the little screw-on insulators, and uh, and just some some cheap smooth electric wire, and it was extremely cost-effective. And we were putting those those posts twenty paces apart, um, and we were intending to electrify it, but with three wires, even even when the power was off, you know, the cows visually they can see it, and yet from a cost perspective, it was it was really. Uh, Quite quite cheap to build, because uh, you, you know we were buying. Maybe it's part of the part of it's the economy, but we were buying rebar, three eighths rebar for uh, four dollars and eighty cents per twenty foot joint, and cutting that down and and by the time you add the insulators, it was costing us a dollar a post, and we were putting those posts on twenty foot paces, so it was. It was quick to to build and uh, and still presented a you know a fairly visible barrier for those cattle with three wires on it.
1: Yeah, so I think you don't you don't have to break the bank and maybe the other upside to that is it it is very portable. If uh, somebody wanted to do that on your land, let's say that you partnered with a cattle producer, they could set that up and if it doesn't work out in five years, they pull their posts and roll up their wire and on to the next place. So I think it, with that electric technology, I, I do see it as being a lot more accessible than it was in the past. When you look at the price of a a three or four strand barbed wire fence, like you say, that's a pretty big investment. And once it's there, it's kind of there.
2: And it's, it's definitely worth, you know, spending time talking to people, going and looking at different fences. I'm, you know, and, and, If you're going to be, if anybody was going to be like us and not own the cattle, because I take it, Scott, that you actually own the cattle that are on on your farm, but if you're like us and you don't want to own them, it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, we came to the realization you don't have to own the cows to have them on your land and to get those benefits, but you do have to scrutinize and parse out all of the different components of that business enterprise of... Feeding and containing and watering cattle, and and say, well, who owns that, and who manages that, and what is the cost for delivering that service, and and we constantly find that with the stock owner, you know, the the critical thing was partnering with somebody who trusts you and that you trust back, um, because we we found more often than not that we don't agree that. That the other person you know, isn't getting a better deal here, but it's close enough within the realm of what we're willing to, to do for less in the name of either nutrient import or the augmentation of soil health. And, and we find that most often we think that it's equitable if both of us are on the verge of being dissatisfied with the business arrangement for what we're getting out of it. And then often we'll go back and do a postmortem and say, well, how did that really work out? I didn't really want to go, you know, spend that time fencing that that piece of alfalfa that I was a little bit nervous grazing cattle on pure alfalfa. But, you know, doing some research and talking to some of the organic dairy guys from the Westlock and Barhead area north of me who do turn their cattle out after freeze up onto alfalfa. OK, well. You know, We'll come to terms with that, but I, I wasn't necessarily looking for the work. It would be a lot easier to put them on the 35-acre piece where we've got 550 bales already set out uh, and centered and the string pulled on, and, and it's easy to go move them to the wire for 10 bales than it is to say, hey, let's walk this eighth of a mile and put in step-in posts in eight inches of snow and have the cattle come and graze it, and then we have to water them in a system where we got to go pump water every day out of a dugout, you know? And so it's, it's good to work with somebody you trust and, and who trusts you that you're not, you're not uh, trying to, you know, stick it to the other, to the other person, because if it's not cost effective enough for this stock person to feed their animals here, then they'll take their animals and go home and uh, that doesn't necessarily help me because then I'm back at the auction mart looking to buy cows that I never wanted.
1: Yeah, that's uh, the only reason that I'm interviewing you and not the other way around is because I know that you're smarter than I am because you didn't go buy the cows. That would have been, if, if I could find somebody that would that would work, I, I think that's a great arrangement if you can continue to make it work. And we've we've toyed with different,
2: different versions of who owns what part of that business enterprise. And right now, we're comfortable with providing, you know, providing the, you know, we'll, we'll put the feed out or we'll make sure that they get fed, we'll provide containment and we'll provide water. And the stock person provides the mineral and, and he'll monitor the condition of the cattle, And prescribe, you know, increasing the feeding rate or decreasing the feeding rate during the wintertime anyway. And also chooses what the recipe is for the selection of the different qualities of hay that might be out there. And if there's ever any treatment of animals required, then that lands in his camp. And so it's it's just a phone call. And, And that was something he was comfortable with, but it meant that we had to present him with a yardage rate that was... Cheaper than he could find elsewhere because he was take he was doing some of that work, and so we wind up, you know, landing on something. Uh, now that the herd is bigger, we figure it's not actually adding that much to our to our job when it's 160 cows versus the first year that we did it. He had 40 cows, and so like I say, he's he's grown quite rapidly. And interestingly enough, he doesn't actually own land base. He doesn't own a farm. He rents a farm home base. And he's utilizing our farm, trusting that we're going to keep this relationship going. And he's aggressively growing his herd of cattle. But we sit down and we go over each other's numbers and be open and frank about it. And and, and simple things like when he's saying, hey, if he can afford to feed an animal for less than $2.50 a day, and if you look at a, a bale of, of hay, Costing sixty dollars, and a, a cow will eat a bale per month. Well, that's two dollars a day just in dry feed. So that's why he was pushing us to say, "Hey, can we go out and graze that?" Because I'm going to charge him less than a dollar a day for for grazing. Uh, although our learning is, hey, maybe next time if it's winter grazing, we might charge him a little bit more because we're aware of the fact that we're saving him a buck fifty a day. You know, and but right. when I have that thought, I share that with him. You know, and so next time he might not push me to go out in the snow and build temporary electric fence.
1: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's good and that's interesting hearing about that, fella. I, I get a lot of people that come to ask me about starting up a farm and and what would I do, and more often than not, I usually tell them don't do what I did. I, I think it was hard and um, I've recommended to more than one person that if you're at all interested in livestock that go find somebody that you can partner with to be the livestock producer in in your scenario because i think there is opportunity to do that without a huge amount of capital up front to get started so that's uh, interesting to hear back into your cover crop plan you mentioned you kind of like to keep it relatively simple and and diversity is important to you what does your cover crop mix look like that you're planning on planting next year
2: you know it's it's actually not firmed up yet and uh, you're gonna laugh because even this spring while I was on the tractor looking looking at where the the cattle had had winter fed last year and we did a did it on a 110 acre parcel where we were unrolling unrolling bales or we we had put up the hay on our land with a stack. A stacker and then we had a stack shredder but basically it's just like a bale processor we're out trying to trying to spread and cover uh you know at, a, at a, a certain nutrient distribution rate is what i'm always i'm always looking at this whole thing as that herd of cattle is my agronomy plan and uh and so the the stockman he's always querying the same thing he goes okay well so on this piece that we winter fed on are you planning to are you planning to plant a cover crop and and so i i said yes but i was listening to this podcast where uh <clears throat> kevin elmy was being interviewed on the grain on the brain podcast so then i i contacted kevin and you know he he gave me some ideas and it, and it was good it was thanks to your podcast that uh it, it gave me some other options a bit more complex than what i have in the bin which has typically been my go to so we'll commonly have stuff that we've retained for seed out of the primary crops that we're producing but it's only been just this last while that we've started to add some of the and and i'm not even going to talk about warm season and cool season it's more about small seeded stuff that i can add you know seeds per acre on a cost effect cost effective scale like radish and and turnip and uh uh, rye grass italian rye grass and that sort of thing uh with a little zero till box trail that i have and so where the cattle have winter fed for the year i don't really make those decisions until i see what type of residue management and what type of weed pressure do i have because it is it is fairly easy to get the other seed relatively quickly it's becoming more available um than it, than it used to be, well, and, and maybe that's not a fair statement because five years ago, I wasn't really even looking for it because I was happy with just, Hey, whatever I've got, that's what I'll put. But I, there are some good tools out there now to help me make that decision. And, you know, it might be more cost effective to buy in advance and have it here, but you can make a call and have it on a truck and, and get your half a dozen bags of seed that you need to to add to those other large seeds that I already have in inventory. Is that a fair statement to say, I don't know what I'm planting this spring?
1: Yeah, I know that's, uh, again, it sounds familiar. I, I kind of usually have a pretty good idea, but it seems like I make some last minute changes every year. Um, and I think you're right. I, I get once a year, my Imperial guy sends me, uh, the list of all the seed they have available and that kind of cover crop market uh type seed just over the last three or five years i've noticed it's it's become the majority of what's available through those guys is all these different new kind of cover crop seeds and a lot of them are pretty exotic and i don't know that we need to get too carried away sometimes with with the complexity that's involved there but i think you're right that having that diversity and diversity outside of what you're growing in those rotations otherwise i think is really important in kind of getting your microbes and and keeping your soil working for you
2: there is some certainly you need to be conscious of the fact that hey you can just order that seed and get it here and you can also you can also spend a fair amount of money and it's easy to wash over it and say well i'd rather spend it in seed than in other crop inputs, but I find that in this whole polycrop cover cropping movement that I find that I'm a little bit of a, of a skeptic, and, and, and don't, I don't I don't want to say that in a way that makes me sound overly negative, but it's almost like the theological concept of agnosticism. Whenever somebody tells me that they know the way, they know this is exactly how it's supposed to go, the skeptic in me goes, yeah, maybe, maybe on your operation, maybe with your pocketbook, but you know, like the, the, the variety, the array of seeds, I am a believer that the more you can put the better, but budget is going to be one of those considerations. And that's where I, you know, if I can get my hands on, on some cheap seed to keep in stock, you know, my in-laws grew, harvested some red clover. And so I bought the red clover rough out of the bin before they sent it away to be to be cleaned. And, and I don't care if it's not been dehulled; I'll put it on with my old uh, air seeder or blow it on with a Valmar or something like that. And, and if it lives more than one year where I'm planning to crop, that's great. And the same with the sweet clover. And if I'm growing my own seed, I can seed it heavier. And I do like having a component of what is going to be next year's plowdown crop to be a biennial that I've planted this year, especially in this last few years where I've, you know, more than once attended workshops or training, you know, attended a great one with a group, a group called Food Water Wellness run by Kimberly Cornish here in Alberta. And they they had uh, Dr. Chris Nichols come and, and talk about soil health for a three-day workshop. And and all of those principles of the longer you can keep a green living plant feeding the soil, um, well then, you know, maybe that means that I need to be planting some of my cattle crop rotation with my green manure starting starting the year before. And, and so I plant with my barley crop, it's going to be sweet clover or red clover or a mixture of the two in there. Even though I might winter feed on top of that and have residue management that kills a big portion of that, doesn't matter. I'm willing to squander that if I can get that seed cheap enough. But it's growing early in the spring, or you know, fall rye or winter wheat. If I've got some spare seed, put it there and have it growing as soon as possible, even if it winds up being something that it's going to get trampled in the springtime during calving or or whatever, right? Um, but some of the exotic stuff is expensive so you know i'm not going out and wasting the hairy vetch seed or alfalfa seed
1: no that makes sense and i think like you say if it is going to get trampled it's probably still better off that there is something something there, some roots in the ground to hold things up and act as a little bit of rebar than nothing to be growing there at all which i guess is the alternative so that makes sense to me um we're getting close to the end here so i'll ask you a few quick ones uh when when you're grazing those uh cover crops are you moving on a daily basis or what's kind of what works for you guys and how do you think about
2: you know i i'd love to move them on a on a daily basis but we don't we find that uh three days is kind of what we compromise on and when i say we it's you know between joanne and myself where she'll say, Oh yes, you'll have this whole, whole idea where that we're going to move the cattle every day. And then it winds up being me who moves them every day. And so, <laughs> and so we kind of settle on whatever would be a three day move. And, and then we'll kind of adjust that as we go, because I'm certainly with, with some of the, you know, the quarter section that we're going to be grazing on the lake bed of this little lake that used to be, there's a band of saline soil where that for years there was evaporation there and it's, it's poorer soil. And so, you know, we will try to run our fencing, our temporary fencing. The poly wire is easy to do contour farming with, way easier than grain farming. And, and so we'll, you know, to, to say what, what would we do different? Well, if it's poorer soil, we might choose to do it differently and move them daily, you know, daily moves and get them to really clean up and to to get a tighter manure distribution, but, uh, but in general, you know, three days tends to be the average.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. What do you do? Do you worry about compaction if you get a week of kind of rainy wet weather and do you manage that any differently or what are your thoughts? Is that an issue? I guess.
2: Well, where we've committed to, uh, to keeping these cattle on the farm year round, it was something that wasn't even on my radar, and and we don't find that through the season that that we have on our soil that we have difficulty with rainy weather a rainy spell causing compaction although this year was a challenge because it was a rainy spell from from about May the 8th through to August 5th and and so so sometimes those cattle like we tried to hold them off of the custom grazing pasture because what was supposed to have been a seasonal lake bed was once again a lake bed so of that 160 acres we had 140 of it underwater and some of it was only six inches deep but we got to a point where we ran out of dry feed to be feeding the cattle up on you know what we call the highland that people from hilly country would laugh at us but it was basically you know up 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 on the high ground above that beach zone um, that was a little bit what we call our harder soil because it's only like six or seven percent organic matter instead of twenty five percent organic matter, and we definitely pounded the heck out of that that soil. But uh, during that calving period, you know, like it, we the cattle are here. We don't have somewhere else to send them. They've got to be somewhere. But that was definitely where we saw the damage. And then there were periods in that where we had cattle out in those paddocks. Grazing for days on end in six inches of water, as it, and you'd turn them into a twenty-acre paddock, and the grass growth in that mixture that was in that pasture, some of it was reed canary grass, and it was, it was getting out of hand. So we had to turn the cattle in there because, you know, it's going to just going to become too coarse and and not be palatable. And and you we we at the in the summer we had a hundred and twenty head here, and you'd put them into a 20 acre paddock or a 10 acre paddock cause we had it divided in half and the whole herd would disappear. You couldn't see a single animal standing on the, on the, you know, at the cab of the tractor with the door open, you couldn't see a single animal and yet, you know, they're out there grazing in water. So we're still learning about, you know, what is the damage from that going to be next year? But I mean, our whole farm is riddled with ruts and hard soil right now, just because of the season that it was. And so the only, takeaway that we've come from that is in that calving time when it was just during spring breakup and it was sloppy, we've, uh, you know, got together with the stockman and he delayed putting his, his bulls in and we're going to now start to calve on the 15th of May instead of the uh, first of April this year. And beyond that from, you know, if it's, if it's a, a spotty piece for a, for a couple of weeks, the only thing that we've done to try to assuage that somewhat is we might go and uh, spread some some extra bedding or some extra fodder down just for a little bit of the, you know, ground armor, soil armor kind of thing, and know that we might have to go back and do a little bit of residue management afterwards with uh, some Phoenix Harrows or Victory Harrows.
1: Gotcha. That was, uh, that was probably my next question was, yeah, uh, what do you do after so this spring on the portion where the bale grazing you got lots of residue uh what's your what do you do before you seed
2: yeah so this so this last this last year we intentionally said well we're going to do another cover crop a uh, green manure crop that we're going to graze so we're kind of doing some back to back we're trying to find out what's the right what's the right rhythm so where we're going to winter feed that should be where we have our green manure plow down the next year, and we started into it in the first two years with doing that backwards in our rotation, where we were grazing them on the in the summertime on that green manure crop, and then winter feeding on top of it, and then the next spring, you know, you'd have areas where it's it's slower warming up, and uh, you have to try to get out there, and you don't want to get out there too soon when the soil's wet and be making ruts when the soil is sensitive it's no different than with you know the cattle out there if you're out there with your tractor and your equipment a little too soon but it does it does delay it in our growing zone where we might not get hard red spring wheat the following year after we've winter grazed so we've now switched our strategy to say well we're going to winter feed and then it's going to be the green manure crop the next year and so it doesn't matter if it doesn't get seeded until mid June necessarily
1: Right. Oh, that's, uh, that's very good. That was the end of my list of questions. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to, to mention that you thought would be helpful for people to to think about when they're trying to plan to do stuff like this.
2: No, nothing,
1: nothing specific other than the fact that I, I don't want to sound
2: like an old codger already, but I guess I'm, I'm getting close now at 53, but I, I looked, I look back at our at our farming, especially as a, you know, like we're a fairly small farm entity in, in what we're doing. And yet we've we've found a way to be quite diversified and, and have a lot of different business enterprises and revenue streams and and cattle became a part of that. But it was just another reminder to me that introducing the livestock was something that I grappled with for years about how would I do that if I don't want to own the cows how can how can that be possible? And it just looking back at it it became another example of how I have more than more than once you know frequently I look back at decisions that we've made and thought, wow, that was a really good choice to tackle that to take that on even though it was intimidating. And yet when I when I'm being really honest with myself, they were good choices, but for completely the wrong reasons or the wrong motivation was what pushed me, or maybe not the wrong motivation, but it turned out to not be the real value, right? So to introduce the livestock onto our land, I, I, I was doing it because it was a means of nutrient import. But when you look at the five principles of soil health, I find that having cattle as a tool made all of the rest of the you know the rest of those principles outside of you know integrate livestock being one of those principles all of the rest of the principles also became easier if the livestock was there as the tool and so it was like wow so that was a good choice to do that but I didn't I didn't fully see the bigger picture and uh and honestly the the whole our whole farming history has has been that so you know, a lot of times you'll do all the work you can to to justify something on paper, to rationalize things. Um, but at the end of it, when I go back and I look at a lot of that rationalization, ah, eh, maybe that was just what I needed to emotionally convince myself it was a good idea.
1: Oh, that's uh, that's a good thing to end on here. I think the last couple of people I've spoke to that was kind of the focus was these five principles of regenerative egg. And, and I think you're exactly right. That's, it's not necessarily what you are aiming for, but it sure makes it a lot easier to, to do those five things or at least get close to doing all of them when you start bringing cattle into the equation, because I, I sure struggled to, to till less and to keep something growing and things like that when you don't have them as part of that system. So, I think that's great. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for, for all your thoughts and all you had to share that, uh, that's a pretty interesting story that you got to tell.
2: I uh, really appreciated the invitation and, uh, I was quite excited to, uh, well, humbled, I guess, to have the experience. Cause I, I've, uh, really enjoyed listening to all of the podcasts that you've put out and I've gleaned something from every single one of them. So hopefully there's something here that, uh, that people can use. Uh, I'm a, a big proponent of uh, supporting supporting people ideologically, at least, uh, who are reluctant to get into farming or to expand their farming in that that small market agriculture. And I think there's still lots of room for it. You know, it doesn't have to be big farms that are out there. There are a lot of people who could who can find their way uh, in a in a small market farm. And it doesn't have to be growing anything exotic. It can just be doing things in an innovative fashion that is still really fantastic stewardship.
1: Yeah, right on. Oh, I, I definitely agree. Okay. Well, thank you very much again. And, uh, for the listeners, I think there's been a few things that Ward mentioned. We're going to put some links up on the website, uh, on the Manitoba Organic Alliance website and hopefully give you some information to, uh, to take what, what he's said and put it into practice.
0: This episode was produced by Karen Claussen and edited by Jason Peters from the Manitoba Organic Alliance. You can check out some resources about how to integrate livestock on your land by going to our website at manitobaorganicalliance.com. Funding is provided in part by the Canada and Manitoba governments through the Canadian Agricultural Partnership. Do you have any ideas for future episodes? Get in touch with us on Twitter at Manitoba Organic or visit our website and let us know. See you next time.